Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This is an extra special episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. In this podcast, I'm going to reveal the name of one of our top 10 ASX small cap shares, as featured in the RAS Rockets Beyond program. In addition, I'm going to share a full founder-CEO interview with you, featuring a person who I believe is one of Australia's most talented, growth-focused entrepreneurs. His creative gaming company is one of the largest independent gaming studios in Australia, achieving millions of downloads every month. A few things before we get started. This company was recommended by myself and the small cap analyst team at Rask. We still have a buy rating on the company. Shares are already up 40% since we released our research a few months ago, but please note that short-term price movements, in my opinion, do not often reflect the true skill of a long-term investor, nor do they reflect a company's quality. While we have recommended shares in this company, I do not yet own the shares for myself. But keep in mind that both my personal holding and our recommendation could change in the future. Finally, I'm not paid anything by anyone to share this unique story with you. This podcast is extremely insightful, providing an overview of a very interesting small cap ASX company and its founder. However, this podcast is also a form of marketing for our business at Rask. I believe we provide Australia's best small cap research and you're about to get a taste of what's on offer. If you like what we do, join us. You'll find a unique coupon code called PLAY, P-L-A-Y, which you can use to join the RAS Rockets Beyond program. You'll find a link just below this podcast. Before I get to the interview, featuring former RASC analyst Kevin Fung and myself, here's a story. When I was younger, I was a tinkerer. I would get old phones, motorbikes and engines, pull them apart and piece them back together. On the family farm, I spent almost all of my time in the shed or down in the paddock trying to build something. I'm a creator personality type. Later in life, I remember getting a road bike and finding out that my learner-approved bike was the same as most other higher-powered motorbikes, but its speed and power was deliberately restricted to comply with Australian laws. Naturally, my next move was to get a new CPU, remove the exhaust cut open the air filter and let it rip. A few weeks later, I received a costly fine from the EPA. I was and still am that person. I have to understand how things work or I literally won't sleep. When I approached investing, the opportunity to learn was the same, except it took me a few years to grasp the rules of the game to then cut through the academic literature and focus on what really matters. While the first three years of investing can seem like a tangent function, It didn't take long for me to realise that one of the best allies in the march towards excess returns is a behavioural edge. This edge can take many forms on many fronts, but there are just as many ways to use a behavioural edge to your advantage as it can go against you. However, one of the ways you can use it to better your investing is refreshingly simple. Just fish in the pools that offer the best opportunity for outsized returns. This requires intellectual humility 
as you must explicitly acknowledge the edge of your circle of competence and pick your battles accordingly. You also have to leave envy at the door. Sure, you can get a behavioral edge in analyzing shares like Apple or Tesla, especially when the investment industry has stacked myopic incentives. Having now analyzed fund managers from near and afar for many years, having started my own investments company and teaching others to do the same, it's clear that one of the best pools for me to fish in is small cap shares. To be sure, it's not the only place I invest, but from all my years of tinkering, I believe these pools offer the most asymmetry for smart, focused, long-term investors. You can get some behavioral edge by simply becoming desensitized to the significant amounts of volatility in small cap ASX shares. By doing so, it provides an opportunity for small cap investors. Every year at RASC, we select 10 ASX small cap stocks to recommend to our members, just 10 companies. We call these the RASC Rockets programs. We start with 2,000 companies on the ASX. We filter for companies below $400 million in market cap. Anything above that is a target for our RASC Invest service, our other membership service. And then we exclude biotechnology companies, exploration, and most resources companies. These, by their nature, are well outside our circle of competence. It's worth noting that while I say $400 million, in the RASC Rockets programs, many of the companies we recommend are firmly below $100 million in market cap. Many investors consider companies this small to be part of nano caps. From our filter, we quickly sort for business quality, growth, management alignment, and quality, and even by the source of the idea. We don't rely on any third-party screeners, it's all primary research. Screeners on ASX small caps result in misfires because the numbers are inaccurate, which is another edge for investors who are prepared to do the work. Also, in the Rockets programs, we are not so interested in what happened in the past, but what could happen next. From here, we get to a list of 30 to 50 ASX companies. Using that, the RAS team is then assigned companies, typically by analyst competence or interest. It's their job to go deeper. Whereas the first part of our process is looking for reasons to exclude companies and avoid wasting our time, here we're trying to get a deeper understanding of the team, product and market to understand what could happen next. We're looking for reasons to include these companies. Finally, we conduct CEO, founder or industry insider interviews to extract insights no one else has and determine the character of the person leading the company. We must have aligned, capable, and honest managers at the helm of our companies. In just a couple of minutes, you'll be introduced to a company that made it through all of this. In 2020, when we launched the RAS Rockets Apollo program, we had a simple mission. Here's what we said. In Australia, there are over 2,000 ASX-listed companies. Many are rubbish. They'll never get off the ground because they lack a scalable business model talented management, industry growth, or a competitive advantage or funding. Rockets are different. While we acknowledge the higher risks associated with investing in small companies, including liquidity, volatility, competition, and funding, we know this space is where many of our country's best businesses start their long journey upwards. What's more, small cap doesn't have to mean speculative. Many of the small companies we've researched for RAS Rockets Apollo meet the same time-tested criteria we've followed for years at RASC, including aligned and talented management, they have or are carving out a competitive advantage and or sticky business models, are reaching operating scale, 
tipping into a five-year period that could result in substantial free cash flow, growing their top line very quickly, have considerable addressable markets for their products or services, some are industry leaders, and, we believe, many are priced for investors with a seriously long-term horizon, i.e. five to ten years or more, end quote. While that all sounds great, and it is, a reasonable portfolio construction approach is necessary because this is a Rockets program. Things will go wrong from time to time. So how have the Rockets programs performed so far? At the time of recording, being August 10th, 2021, the average return of the Apollo program, which was our first program, is 125%. Not bad for less than 16 months. But this is a short-term record. And what I must say is this. While we haven't issued a single sell rating on any of our companies from the Apollo program, our worst fall on paper is now 56%. Keep in mind, we're not buying CSL shares. We hope for and target two to three big winners in each year's cohort of 10 companies. Our biggest winner from Apollo rose over 1,000% in the first year. Given this, if you join us today, you should approach a RAS Rockets company, like the one you're about to hear from, with your eyes open and adopt a portfolio construction approach that's appropriate for the risk of these companies. Our recommendations almost always come with a CEO interview or RASC analyst discussion. We do this to help you understand the risks and what it takes for a company to be a success over five years or more. Our Rockets members invest, on average, between three dollars and $7,000 per Rocket company. And I suggest that our members adopt an equal weight approach to small cap investing rather than try to pick which one they think will outperform before they've seen all 10. While both strategies are honourable, it's easier to do equal weight. And trust me, the regret minimisation framework suggests it's better to have some exposure to every company. But also, mathematically it makes sense if we're long-term investors. If we can identify another true rocket for our members, like a company that could go up potentially 10x or more, that's a 10 times return from one position. That can make up for nine other companies going down 100% all the way to zero, which in my career, by the way, has never happened. At the center of the RASC investment universe are ETF small cap managed funds and lower cost funds with high active share or low correlation to traditional markets. One step away from that, we have our RASC Invest service, which identifies rapid growth shares from Australia, thematic ETFs and select global stocks. At the very limits of our universe are our rockets, like RASC Rockets Beyond, and RAS Rockets Apollo. What I mean to say is, my general advice to all of our hundreds of focused small cap investors inside the Rockets programs is that these companies are for serious investors only. If you're an investor with some experience, the right attitude and a true long-term horizon, with your financial house in order and an ability to take risk, a portfolio allocation to Rockets companies, whether it's 20k or 200, should only form a small part of a diversified portfolio. So how can you discover the nine other companies after you listen to this interview? For the next five days, the RAS Rockets Beyond service will be open for you to join. As a podcast listener, you can join the service directly for $500 off the yearly membership fee of $2,000. Therefore, it's $1,500 or $150 per Rocket report, podcast or interview, plus ongoing coverage. We've included exclusive CEO interviews with many of our companies, along with full analyst reports. We've also included six bonus analyst reports and five additional CEO interviews on ASX companies that didn't quite make the cut to get into our top 10.
These companies have lots of potential, but for one reason or another, we didn't let them in. We update all of our members every quarter with an official quarterly Rockets report. So for the next five days, you can join Rest Rockets Beyond and become an exclusive member and investor in these transformative companies. If you're looking to get your own edge, join hundreds of other in-the-know ASX small cap investors inside the RAS Rockets program. Keep the link in the podcast player and the coupon code PLAY, that's P-L-A-Y, handy for the end of the show. Okay, we're about to begin our exclusive interview with Jerry Sackis, CEO and founder of Playside Studios. Playside Studios is an exciting but small company with an enterprise value of around $133 million at the time of recording. Please keep in mind some of the risks as I see them include execution risk, volatility, competition, and the overall dynamics of the gaming ecosystem, which as you're about to find out, is changing rapidly. But enough of that, let's hear how Playside Studios came into existence and Jerry's backstory before starting the company. Jerry, thanks for taking the time to join Kevin and I for this chat, mate. Thanks for having me. So to start things off, what we'll do is just ask you, we'll just throw it to you and ask you to explain kind of the genesis of the Playside business. Uh, maybe you can explain a bit of your background too and like how you got the idea um, and then what those early days looked like and kind of bring us up bring us up to speed on where it is today. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, uh, I was never terribly good at school. Um, I, I was great at English and a, and a bunch of other subjects like art and design and um, <laughs> your typical more creative subjects, but uh, I didn't really enjoy school that much. So when I left, um, one, one of the options I had was a, it was actually the first games course that they were doing in Australia, I'm pretty sure at the time, um, through a university, which was at RMIT. Um, and so, you know, you needed all these enter scores and stuff to get in, but I went in there with my folio and I just showed them what I'd been doing. Um, which was essentially sitting at the back of the class drawing every uh, in every class. And I prov- uh, sort of showed them my folio and they, and they loved it and um, I got in. So got into uni, studied for three years at RMIT. It was called digital art uh, in games. Um, and I got, you know, distinctions and HDs in most of my subjects. So I did really good there, focusing on what I was actually good at. Um, leaving um, RMIT, I, st- I worked at a studio called Chrome, uh, which was an Atari house in Melbourne. Stayed there for a few months doing testing. And it just happened that at the time that was happening, um, EA Games had started a very, very small studio next door. I think there was three engineers there and they were working on a PC port for a game called Dead Space, which was a large uh, horror game. Um, And I sort of saw these guys walking back and forth and I just heard rumbles that they were there. So I just walked in and I said, look, I'm doing testing next door. If you guys ever need a tester, just let me know. Um, a few months later, they, they called me up, got a job at EA. Um, we grew the studio from, I think, three people to about 50 people in the end, uh, 40 to 50 people. Uh, we're working on a console game that never came out. It was a horror game. Um, you can kind of look it up, what we did in Melbourne, but it was essentially a horror game based on Jack the Ripper. Um, and it was, um, it was pretty crazy. The stuff we were doing <laughs> yeah, out there. Um, and it was a multiplayer game. You are sort of running around killing vampires and stuff. Um, it, it all leaked, so I don't really mind to talk about it. But after that, they sort of shut down the studio for no real reason. Um, it was amazing working at EA. Obviously, the things that I learned there, I, I went from tester to designer to lead game designer of the studio um, within four years. I think by the end of it, I was only 24. So I think I was the youngest person in the studio, pretty much leading the design on the project. Um, 
And, you know, I loved it. And, and what we learned and the procedures and stuff were, were really important to what happened next, which was when they sort of said, look, you can come and work in, uh, in the States and you can head up one of the other teams. I was, I didn't, my family situation, uh, my mum's got muscular dystrophy. I couldn't really move overseas. Um, so I wanted to stay here. And I thought like, what do I want to do? If I, I, I don't want that to happen again, where I spend four to five years working on somebody else's game and then they just shut it down. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we poured hours into that game, you know, over time, everything, we, we, we worked really hard on it. So I rang up my best mate, um, Aaron, Aaron uh, Passius, and I said, look, I've got a crazy idea. I think mobile is going to be huge. This was when Angry Birds and Fruit Ninja had just come out. I said, I really think the mobile industry is going to be bigger than console in a few years, and I want to start my own studio. Um, you know, the costs are nowhere near as big as, as console, but the payoffs kind of are. Um, so I said, you know, who should I talk to? And his brother-in-law, Mark Galopoulos, uh, was working at uh, at that point that was Patterson's. Um, and I said, look, he said, go and talk to Mark. So I went and spoke to Mark. I said, look, I need investment of some sort. I've got no idea how any of this stuff works. Uh, I just want to start making games. I'm going to hire some of the EA guys and we're going to make mobile games. Uh, and Mark's like, yeah, yeah, cool. Like just listening. Uh, and then the next week I had a meeting with both of them and they were like, look, we want to invest um, and we want to do this with you and, um, you know, take it forward. So started a games company with two of my best mates, basically. Um, and, you know, they, they say, you know, you shouldn't mix business with sort of friends and family, but we've been really good the whole way along. Um, and, you know, I think what Mark specifically taught me about business and about the investment world and all that sort of stuff over the last nine years has, I guess, led to this point where I went from being, you know, a game designer to being, you know, CEO of a listed company. And it's been a really long journey. And, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes. We've made a lot of really great games on the way. And, you know, we're at the point now where, you know, listing, we can really scale this to the next level and hopefully one day become a EA um, or someone of that level. And that's that's really the goal. You know, the goal is to, to create a, a smash hit game um, that we can build an entire studio around. Um, so that, that was kind of the foundations of how it all began. Um, but I can get deeper into what happened after we, we sort of started the company, if you'd like. But No, definitely, Jerry. Um, thanks for sharing that story. It's a, it's a pretty cool background, especially with the three guys and TJ. And, and also, you know, we learned about you, you know, having Steve Jobs as your idol and, you know, how that really sort of sparked that, his commencement speech at Stanford, how that really sparked the idea of Playside. So um, it's a really interesting story. Can you talk us through sort of the process of how a game is developed at Playside? You know, sort of rough timeframes, how many engineers, developers and creatives are involved? Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's good to see you did your research as well on some of those other podcasts. That's good. Um, yeah, I think the way the games are, are made here, every game's a bit different. So something like Animal Warfare, which at the moment um, for the last couple of quarters has made up a lot of our revenue, that was a three-month game. It was a very small, casual project that, you know, we, we sort of took a punt on and thought, you know, this is a great idea. Let's just make it in three months and put it out. Those games are very quickly into development. You know, you'll, you'll come up with the idea, you'll rapidly prototype it alongside developing, you know, the tools for it while you're going. So we used Unity for that one, but we had a whole layer of other things we were building on top of it. So that way, if the game was successful, we could reskin it and make other games from it as we did with Toy Warfare. So that game, the smaller casual games, they're kind of very fluid. They just happen as, as they, they go for three, four months. The, the larger games, like what we're developing now with Legally Blonde, with Godfather, um, with Age of Darkness, they have months of pre-production work that goes into a concept art, game design documents, technical design documents. Um, at the same time, the engineers are building the architecture underneath that we're going to need to build the game on. So they go for a bit longer. 
then the development, there'll be different stages, obviously alpha, beta. And the, the industry has kind of changed in a way now where no one's, uh, unless you're launching the next Call of Duty or the next large console game, no one expects you to launch a fully-fledged uh, AAA game day one. Uh, they have this thing now called Early Access. Um, and, and everyone kind of goes into Early Access and says, look, this is what we've started building. We think it's pretty good. We'd like to work with the community now over the next couple of years to develop this into a full title. And that's what something like Age of Darkness is, where it's a, it's a much larger title. Even with, you, with um, Legally Blonde and Godfather, they go into what's called a soft launch phase on mobile, where we can then test for months to make sure that all the metrics are correct before we launch it like a hard launch worldwide. And we can start testing all the sort of data before then. And that way, when we spend for user acquisition day one, we know that the data is all there. When we launched Animal Warfare Hard Launch, we knew that it was going to be a success because we had about two months of soft launch that gave us good KPIs. So everything now is, is kind of a, a bit, little bit more drawn out on the uh, launch phase, which is actually much better. Back in the early days, you'd have to launch a game. And if, if it was good, it was good. And if it was bad, then you just didn't make any money from it. Um, so it's a bit better now. Um, and I think that's sort of how games work now. It's just a really collaborative process the whole way along from, from uh the beginning with the developers to launch with the community. One of the things, Jerry, I wanted to ask you about was more around, you mentioned like kind of the gaming engines there. Like from what I understand, they're taking huge strides forward. Like some of that like metahuman stuff, even like yeah, it's kind of crazy to think the realism that these games are bringing to the world. I kind of see this convergence between like, you know, just like storytelling and actual game development. Like I think my belief is that games, if they haven't already, will replace most like most of our time watching movies. Yeah. And um. One of the things that I think about a lot is kind of like the gaming engines and how that has changed your ability to develop fast. Can you just explain like how the ecosystem has impacted also your ability to launch titles? Like you mentioned, I didn't know it was three months, right? So like for that kind of game, I've got it actually, I've got it right here on my phone. Animal Warfare. You can't see it because I've got the, the background, but I got it here on my phone. Trust me. You like the next one even better. Yeah, cool. Okay, great. So can you explain just like what a gaming engine is and how that impacts your development times? Yeah, for sure. That, Animal Warfare is actually the perfect title to talk about this with. So the first game we ever created was a game called Catch the Ark. Um, there were three people plus me on that team, so four developers. Something like Animal Warfare, maybe we had six to seven like full-time developers on it, and then the rest of us all, you know, the leads and a bunch of other people on it. But say the teams were similar size, Catch the Ark took us a year to develop because we were developing a tool, an engine, everything alongside it. And what that would mean is that when we went to do the, the next game, we would have to actually keep developing the engine with it because the next game might be a racing game and we didn't build the engine to do racing games. With Unity and with Unreal, they're built to do essentially everything um, and they're built to do it across every platform. If I wanted to bring Animal Warfare tomorrow to a PlayStation, which I would never do, but say I wanted to do that, it's really... as silly as it sounds, it is basically a click of a button. You know, we would have to spend months to get it perfect. But to bring, for instance, World of Pets, World of Pets, we launched on PC, iOS, iPad and iPhone, all, all on the one day and all cross-platform, all because Unity basically allowed that. Um, so there was obviously a lot of code that went into it to make it cross-platform. But aside from that, being able to, we, the whole way along, we were testing it on Mac, PC, I, like all the different iPhone devices because Unity allows that. So as much as these engines cost money, um, you know, Unity obviously is a fee, uh, Unreal Engine take a percentage. As much as they cost money, the amount of money you save not having to constantly develop an engine, um, you know, you it's, you'd return it in tenfold. So um, with, with Unity, they're, they're continuously adding things. Unreal, as you just said, with MetaHuman and all that sort of stuff. I mean, Unreal Engine 5 is 
I've never seen anything like it. I'm actually shocked. I have no idea how any of it's done. Um, and, you know, with all the new, um, like that, they just released the beta or the alpha, I think it was last week, um, with, with the environment that's just got billions of polygons in it. Um, and it's just, it's a basically a movie scene. And the way that they've created a toolkit around it to actually be able to play that in a game, I don't even know how they do it. I don't even know if any of my engineers here could tell you how they do it. It's that good. So um, it's pretty exciting. And I agree with you. I think that, first of all, I think movies will start to be built within these engines. So I think Pixar and all those movies, they'd be silly at the moment not to be looking at Unreal Engine and what that can do for them. Being able to actually, in real time, check out scenes instead of having to render them through Maya and stuff like that. Um, you know, you look at um, The Mandalorian, they shot that. The green screen was actually a TV screen, like a massive room, and it was running the Unreal Engine. So as the, as the camera would move, it would actually move the 3D camera in the background of the, the green screen. It's, it's all in real time. So anything you see on, on, on uh, Mandalorian is actually a fully rendered 3D scene. It's all the same toolkit we use here um, for, for instance, Project Draco, which is our large console title, which will probably launch probably not next financial year, the year after. But these games, they, they need that kind of technology to really you know, do that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy stuff. Um, Age of Darkness uses the Unreal Engine. And I, I mean, I, I can't wait to see what Unreal Engine 5 does to it, but it's amazing technology. Yeah, it's super it's, exciting. It, yeah, Sorry, it's, it's yeah. just really incredible sort of stuff. The the scale that the, these guys are doing, and and also you know it's like that open source sort of type nature where like you know resources are shared now, and it just means that development and progress are, are so much more accelerated. What do you think about the key milestones in in Playside and you know becoming that triple A game studio, and why do you think Playside's titles are so highly rated? Yeah, so I think from, for us, from inception, our goal has been to create really high-quality products. There's nothing that we've put out that when you look at it in a screenshot or in a video that it looks low quality. Um, even the work-for-hire stuff we've done, we've never taken work-for-hire deals, even no matter how large they are, of a game that we don't think looks that good. And then there's how it plays and then there's how it performs, right? So, you know, looking good is, is number one. Um, now, when it comes to user acquisition and when it comes to large branded titles, that's very important. On mobile, how it plays is becoming less and less of a like important thing in terms of mechanics or you know like massive games on mobile. They're very much streamlined mobile games now, like match three games, idle games, something like an Animal Warfare. No one's no one's really playing the fully fledged. You know, th there's games like Fortnite and Call of Duty, but aside from them, there's none of these other really large 3D games yet on mobile now it will definitely go that way. And the more and more things that go cross-platform, the more the industry will transform. But right now, it's very much about understanding the mobile market and which games monetize and retain users, coming up with really great brands that can evolve those sort of genres, um, and then and basically just developing them and putting them out and, and testing them and getting all the data and science behind it and making them that good. On console and PC, it's still very much about gameplay first. Um, art second and, and performance with you know with all of that as well so um, we, we've just almost all of us have come from very large console studios or mobile studios we've got that mentality we want to make AAA products from a very small indie company we're at almost 100 staff now so we've grown quite a lot since the beginning of the IPO but we, we're very picky with who we hire and who we choose um, we've hired a lot of internationals as well to get in here we've got a producer our head, head of production is from Fortnite 
He worked on League of Legends. So we're, we're starting to get these really large talents in. And that's important for not just us, but for the entire industry in Australia to grow as well. These government grants that they're bringing out, they're going to be great short term. Long term, we're going to get a lot of international companies coming here that are probably going to steal a lot of the staff. But what they're also going to do is bring in more staff into the industry that we can then take as well. So just, you know, you can never look at, I guess, competitors in Australia. It's about growing the entire industry. Because if the entire industry is growing and the ecosystem is getting bigger, then it's going to be great for all of us. So, yeah, that's kind of how we look at it. Yeah, I guess I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of went on a bit of a rant there. but That's good, mate. That's where you get the good stuff. With the, the IPO, can you explain how you're thinking about in terms of like developing games in-house and brands and whatever, and then I guess pivoting away from the work for hire stuff? Like, I think I heard you say in a recent interview that kind of a, it's still important to have that work for hire element and not betting big on any individual brand. But um, can you explain just, I guess, how you, you're going to use funds and kind of the strategy going forward? Yeah, for sure. So I think the work for hire stuff, especially now when we're still growing, um, I think it's important. Obviously, they're great margins. We're never losing money on them. We're always trying to put on heads that you know account for the projects we're on. So it's a, it's a much easier business to maintain. The problem with work for hire is you can't scale it. You can't just go and scale a work for hire business. It's based on what projects other people are doing and whether they choose you. You can definitely scale, obviously, an original IP business because that's what all the largest companies are. They're all creating their own IP. So as much as work for hire is, is great right now, and, and I've never said that we'll get rid of it entirely because I guess what's going to happen is if once we have a smash hit, people are going to be wanting to pay us even more for work for hire. So it's going to be like always, you know, a bit of a seesaw there as to what we do. But, you know, at the moment, what we're doing is I guess we're being a bit more careful. We're being a bit, you know, we've raised the bar as to what we would take as a work for hire project again. Um, and we continue to do that almost quarterly is like, okay, cool. Now we're sort of here. Let's say that this is now the budget for our work for hire games. And, you know, it's also about what we're working on. As I've said, it's the brands. They're, they're now getting even more strict as to what we think we, we should be doing. Um, so work for hire is great. And it's, it's, it's almost how we've grown the company up until this point anyway. It, it has always been do large work for hire deals and then reinvest that into original IP. Obviously, now we don't have to do that because we've got funding, um, but it's still important to do it because, you know, otherwise you're just going to make dramatic losses uh, while you're growing and we don't want to do that. We want to we make sure that any loss we make is, is funding new titles. That's, that's sort of our entire growth strategy. In terms of what we're doing now, and I guess why I think our strategy is the best for an early sort of listed company I think what might happen to some um, companies that list is they might just choose one thing or two things to sort of you know try and they'll just put all their eggs in that basket and if both of them fail which can easily happen on mobile or on PC or on console then basically they're in a very bad position right after listing um, because if you're not making revenue if you're losing money if two of the games that you've just spent a year making aren't making any money then how do you grow from there you're gonna have to go and raise it at a much less valuation it's, it's just a nightmare scenario what we're doing here is we, we could be easily just doing two games but we're working on like I think somewhere between 10 and 15 products at the moment um, and, and multiple disciplines and, and we're, we're transforming teams, we're changing teams daily to suit the different games. And what we're doing is, you know, almost every quarter next year, the first quarter of next year, I think we've got two titles that are launching, but almost every quarter after that, we've just got large titles launching every quarter. Uh, and, and they're big titles, like the stuff we're doing with Laser Beam and Fresh, you know, that's a massive PC title that instantly is going to get free marketing. Um, and we, we're, we're owners of that title. So it's 
the things we're doing now is much bigger than say an animal warfare. We're still doing the small animal warfare games to you know ensure that we're always growing revenue while we're still making these larger titles. But you know the chance that one of these larger titles can become a smash hit is obviously much larger than you know animal warfare becoming a smash hit or one of our other smaller casual games. That's sort of what we're doing. We're, we're focusing on larger products, uh, but over extended periods of time now. Legally Blonde, I think, was a I think nine month development. Um, Godfather's a, a similar one, and that's just almost soft launch level. So it's, yeah, they're, they're large products now, and these games are live operations products as well. So that that team on Legally Blonde, for instance, once it launches, they stay on it, and then they'll just keep developing it and continuously transforming it and running events inside the game and just continuously evolving it until it does become one of those big games. Um, you know, the, the games that we're basing Legally Blonde on, some of them are doing a billion dollars a year in revenue, like Candy Crush and Project Makeover, all these really large mobile games. Um, not to say that Legally Blonde is going to do that. I don't want to put that out there, but that is the, the platform that we're building. You know, a successful one can do that. And, and that is really what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to get one of these 15 titles to explode, and then we can wrap the entire studio around that. Um, and that's something like a studio that's about to list in the States, Jam City. They had one puzzle game that just did really, really well. And then everything they did around that was just more branded puzzle games. Um, so that's sort of what we're looking at. You know, if, for instance, if we were to launch Age of Darkness and Age of Darkness was to become the biggest real-time strategy game that's ever come out on PC, then maybe our strategy would start to change to be more around large PC games. So we're just trying a whole bunch of stuff still. We're never set on one thing. Um, as much as we are a mobile company, we're still trying these PC titles and, and, and it still evolves what we do on mobile when we do these larger PC and console titles. Um, it just grows the talent. So yeah, we're, we're trying everything and, and one of them will work. Um, but even the ones that, you know, if they just perform adequately, then we're still going to keep scaling and we're still going to keep growing in revenue and, and keep doing really well. And so, you know, you've almost got a company that's going to continue to perform with the chance of striking gold. And I think that's, that's how we're sort of, we're doing things here. And that's, I guess, why we keep doing work for hire and stuff like that as well. Uh, we, we love that nimbleness, Jerry, and like also having those feedback loops that you talk about where, you, you know, you can go through alpha and beta testing and, and get feedback from the community where like you're not just, you know, going out there cold turkey, like you, you're really sort of listening to your users and your customers. So more on that, like with the, you know, with you guys sort of bearing that full cost of the development up front, is there anything in particular that you and the team do to try and de-risk that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, so... One thing that we do really well, and it kind of goes back to that that testing that we'll just talk about then, is we we test pretty much from before we've even got a game. So with Legally Blonde, while we were actually pitching for it, MGM didn't know this, but that's fine. But while we were pitching for it, we were running ads of basically we came up with a piece of art, and it was just uh, basically a girl standing in front of a puzzle screen. Um, like a mobile puzzle screen. And we ran ads on Facebook while we were pitching for the license. One was just an ad that just said new match three game. And the other one was the exact same ad. And it just said new legally blonde movie game out. Um, and the, the legally blonde movie one got 30% more clicks, just the exact same image, right? So we hadn't even started the game. We hadn't even signed a contract. We hadn't even grabbed the license yet. But what that meant to me was like, okay, I have to sign this license. And it doesn't really matter what we pay for it, even though it was low six figures, 30% extra on user acquisition is, is unheard of. And, and that's what these brands bring in. The brands, if I show you a picture of a, a video of a new car game coming out, or I show you a video of the Fast and the Furious franchise new game coming out, the more chance of you clicking the Fast and the Furious one. Uh, and that's what we're trying to get with Godfather and Legally Blonde. So the whole way along, even Animal Warfare, Idle Area 51, 
Idle Area 51 was called Idle Mafia for its first month of development. And we were running ads with different, um, you know, themes while we were even developing. And then eventually we were like, you know what? The Mafia stuff without a brand on it, it's very hard to crack into. So we're just going to call it Idle Area 51. And we, and we were running ads on UFO stuff and that was working really well. Animal Warfare at the end, like towards the end of development, um, we were running ads that, once again, the game wasn't even out. We we're running ads of different color animals and picking which ads were performing better on colors. So we de-risk ourselves by essentially checking our development 24-7 against users. Um, and not many studios do that. And it is a bit of a unique thing that we do. Uh, and we've spoken to other studios about what we do. And it's like, wow, we, have, we didn't even think about doing it that early. You know, like we will transform games entirely if we think that users would rather play a different themed game. Um, and we're still running the same genre, but we're just changing it. Um, with things like Legally Blonde, while we're developing it, we might try different art styles out and see which ones, you know, work better with the audience. So what it means is, you know, there's still a chance that you can launch this, these games and they don't perform, you know, ridiculously. But what it means is that you're giving yourself the best shot the whole way. And if along the way you believe that, you know what, there's, this isn't gelling, we're not getting any clicks at all, um, there's something that's just missing no matter how many different things we've tried, then you can cut development way earlier on a product. Um, and we've done that before with, you know, products that maybe we've only been working on for a month. And we, we've found out very early that like this just won't work. It just doesn't gel. Um, and having that, like we've got, I think, four or five people now on our data analytics team um, and user acquisition team. So, you know, we've built that team quite strong. For a studio of our size, that's really, really big team. Um, that's the same type of size team that, you know, someone like a, a larger mobile product, like maybe a Candy Crush would have. Um, so, you know, we're, we're building that because we think it's important and we, and we do want to make sure that we're not, you know, wasting money on, on games that aren't going to work. Um, so, yeah, that, that's sort of what we do. I think the data and the science now and what you can get out of these um, analytics programs and the tool sets that we've built as well around data, it's so important now. Um, and yeah, it's probably more important more than ever now. Mm, that's, that's great. Like the agility so early on to pretty much get it before it's even pitched, right? Like it's super important. Um, can you explain, because I, I don't think we've actually recovered this, but um, just like the monetization efforts and how that's changing for you going forward. Like a lot, I imagine a lot of people that, or a lot of our investors probably don't play mobile games that often, but maybe if you can just explain the, the model um, and how, that, how that's going to change and scale into the future. Yeah, for sure. So on mobile, there's essentially two ways to make money. One is they're both free, the games. The premium games don't really work that well on mobile. Um, so you download the game for free, and then there's two really different types of games. One is one like Animal Warfare, which is completely ad-based. We only make, I think, about 10 to 20% of our revenue through IAP on um, Animal Warfare. And the other one is IAP, which is in-app purchases. So that's the other way of making uh, money. Those games there usually are the ones that perform the best. What it means is that you can bring users into the game and that a very small percentage of users, probably 3 to 4% of users, will actually spend money but that they're going to spend a lot of money uh, and they're going to spend more money than every other user that would watch an ad. There was actually a stat that came out last night. The Jurassic Park World game did, a, I think it was like Jurassic, one of the Jurassic Park games, there's been so many of them, did 100 million in revenue with 25 million downloads. That's a very low amount of downloads to do 100 million in revenue. So it goes to show the difference that you can get once you really make the perfect product with, that can have in-app purchases in it. Uh, and that's really what we're trying to build with um, Legally Blonde and Godfather. We've had experience doing it in the past. We've done it for partners, done it for many work for hire deals. So we've, we've gained that knowledge over the last nine years, which I guess has allowed us to do this. 
Um, and so, you know, yeah, we, we've, we've developed games that have done easily over 100K in IAP for partners. Um, we know we can do way more than that for our own titles. But um, yeah, it's sort of, you know, that's where the, the gold mine is in the in-app purchase space. Switching gears a little bit, um, Gary, like, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the ClickHouse partnership and how working with like a creator and influencer that understands gaming and esports like Fresh is, like, you know, how that's sort of changed a little bit and, you know, just, you know, how that's developed over time and, you know, where you guys see that going in the future. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. It's like we've got, you know, Lachlan and Fresh, I mean, Lannan and Fresh. Um, Lannan is one of the biggest names in, in um, you know, Twitch and, and streaming and YouTube. Um, and Fresh is, is quite large as well. But when it comes to Fresh, the knowledge that we get from actually having someone who's very good at esports, uh, that's, you know, that's invaluable. So, you know, we've got two on that front. You know, usually we'll, we'll deal with, we'll join forces with influencers where we know that they're going to do really well marketing wise. But when we get that sort of holy grail of like, okay, they're not only going to do well marketing wise, but also help us to check the product and develop the game and they know what their audience wants. You know, we, we did that with the kids for World of Pets. As much as World of Pets was more of a, I guess, work for hire game and we had a small uh, ownership in it. Um, that was sort of one of our first partnerships. The kids the whole way along were giving us ideas that like none of us would ever think of, like just weird stuff that we'd be like, why would we ever put that in the game? But obviously kids like it. So we did a lot of stuff like that that worked really well. With Fresh, you know, we're sending him, you know, this game we're making is very much a hardcore game. I can't tell you what it is, but you can imagine by what Fresh play and what uh, Lanham play, they're, they're the types of games we're making. And so we're checking with them and be like, you know, what do you think about this art style? Um, you know, this is how the the something works in the game. What do you think about it? Uh, and they're like, yeah, that's exactly how I'd use it. Give it to me. They'll play around with it. They'll say, okay, increase this, decrease that. Uh, and that and that works really well with us. Um, you know, uh, large games like League of Legends, they'll actually hire or they'll, they'll I guess, commission or pay a bunch of um, really good esports guys to play their games nonstop. Um, with us being able to work with them the whole way along, it's just really, really good. Really good. And, um, you know, I, that game's actually coming out this year. So I guess you'll see sooner or later what it is going to be. But it's, it's amazing working with these guys. We are, I guess, at the forefront of that. We, there aren't many studios working with influencers like this closely. Um, they might do some influencer partnerships where at the end of the, the game, they'll, they'll play it for a week. This is literally, you know, Fresh and Lanham both have ownership in this game. Um, and, you know, this is the, to be able to say that Laserbeam is on your game and he owns it, it's very different to saying that he marketed it. Um, and so all of his fans will want to check it out and see what it is. Um, and we're excited and we're building it for that audience. So, yeah, that's the difference, I guess. You mentioned at the top of the show, mate, that um, you didn't like school that much. And, yes. um, but uni was pretty good for you. Yep. How, how do you think about, you know, there's the self-taught, you know, developers and creators and designers. Like, how do you think about that? And then is there anything unique that comes with, like, having them pe- those types of people in the team? Like, how do you kind of inspire them and keep them moving forward? Yeah, our best developers are ones that were self-taught. We might have found them through their uni course, which is, I guess, how I was found as well back in the day. I guess uni has that. It's almost like a launch platform and it's almost like a checking process to make sure that they can do three years of it. But our best developers learned 99% of what they learned outside of uni. Uh, during uni uh, hours, you know, like what, while they were doing uni in that three years, they were learning everything outside of it. And that would be my, I guess, take on it all is that, you know, school, uni, everything, if you're not actually putting in the work outside of it, uh, it's, you're not going to grow at all. Uh, learning what everybody else learns is not going to give you a, a, you know, foot through the door. It's just going to give you what everyone else knows. So you won't get picked. As we go forward, 
that is sort of our strategy here as well, especially with juniors. It's about teaching them that self-learning is important. We're all playing Fortnite the other night and I was guilty of also being part of this uh, Discord channel and we're all playing. And I think one of the leads came in and there was a bunch of juniors in there playing and he said, hmm, this is interesting. This doesn't look like Age of Darkness. And then they were all like, oh, okay, cool. And then like three of them slogged out and they were just like, you know, let's go and work on our art. And for me, it's not about them doing overtime or work on Age of Darkness. It's about, hey, outside of hours, you guys are still juniors. You guys are still mids. Go and just work on your talent. And, and then that'll help you progress with it. not just us, but one day when you leave and you go to another company, it just helps you grow. Um, and I think it's really important. If you just come to work every day and do nine to five, it's going to be very hard to grow, especially in this industry where, as you've seen with the Unreal Engine and, and with all these things changing every single day, whether it's Apple implementing new things, whether it's um, the, the engines, you've got to be learning literally weekly to stay on top of this stuff. That's what I think sometimes, you know, if you don't get a job straight out of uni, uh, you know, the next couple of years, if you haven't got a job or if you're not self-teaching yourself, you've essentially forgotten everything that you've learned because everything's changed. Um, mm. The industry moves that fast. One more question for you, mate. Um, just around, you know, Steve Jobs being your idol, and um, you mentioned Apple there, which just reminded me. Like, there's been a f- fair bit of argy bargy with Apple taking so much of the clip from developers, right? How do you see that relationship going for just not not just you guys, but just generally speaking, going forward? Like, they take a fair slab of meat, right? Yeah. Look, the thing is, I think what's being lost in a lot of this stuff is it's not just Apple; it's everyone. It's yeah. um, you know, it's 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 Google, it's uh, Xbox, it's PlayStation. They all take it. The difference with Apple is because it's so highly used on a day to day basis, from Facebook to Instagram to Netflix to all these different things. I think that's why it's, um, I guess, at the forefront of conversation. Whereas an Xbox and a PlayStation, you go and play it for games, and therefore you assume that those games are going to be playing Xbox and PlayStation. Um, I think where this all kicked off originally was Netflix sort of saying, well, why are we, if someone signs up on Netflix uh, on through an iOS device, why are we paying 30%? You know, yeah. um, you know so that's why Netflix, and I think Spotify, both of them, you can't sign up through iOS. You have to do it outside of it and then use the app. I don't know. I mean, a lot is coming out in this, this epic case against Apple. Uh, I've, as you sort of know, I've, I've got a very high um, opinion of Apple and what they are trying to do. Um, and I do believe in the ecosystem because, you know, we launch things on Android and it's amazing and we, we make a lot of money on Android on through Google, but there are so many devices and it's so fragmented through all mm. the different software options that, you know, we can never be sure when we launch something that it's not going to crash on a specific device that someone's got with a specific, um, you know, software update. With, with the way Apple does it, and I think Google is starting to get better at this, but the way Apple does it is it's, it's a perfect ecosystem. Everything's controlled. Privacy is at its, its highest uh, through the devices, end-to-end encryption. Um, when I download a game on it, I'm never scared I'm going to get hacked. I'm never scared that they're going to steal my money. The whole system works. What Epic is pushing for is that developers can have their own payment gateways and um, that's not going to work the way that Apple works. Um, and I don't necessarily think it should work that way. Um, I think that you know it, there is a security around being able to get it and double-clicking your phone and it just pays for something and you never have to think about it. I buy things online sometimes from reputable stores and you don't know whether it's going to steal your money. So I don't want that through my phone where I've got all my personal information. Um, so I, I guess we'll see where that goes. I'm of two minds. I think the Netflix stuff is questionable. You know, it is a subscription service, but then you do run into that same issue of, well, what happens if there's an up and coming subscription service and they're essentially stealing money from people or doing dodgy stuff? If it, if it runs through Apple, like 
we can't even give you a refund through Apple. You have to go through Apple to get that refund. We, we can help you with how to do that, but it all goes through Apple. If, if you've got a problem with a subscription service and you're going through their payment gateway, well, then who's responsible? Is it is it Apple? Is it mm. them? You know, Apple's got them on their platform. So it, it starts to get very convoluted. So I don't know. I think the way they're doing things is great. Um, I, I, I'd keep it that way. Look, we, we'll take less percentage if they give it to us. Um, they've got the small business thing now, which obviously you know won't really work for us for that much longer, but um, the, which is the 15% um, yeah. revenue under a million. Um, in IAP. So we've still got a bit of that because most of our games have been ad-based and they don't take any money off ads. So if you want to run ads in your game, you get 100% of that. Apple don't do anything about that. Um, and that's because you're not taking someone's credit card. So it makes a bit more sense. Do I think that what they've done currently with the privacy stuff around 14.5 is probably a bit far? I'd say so. I think that was almost, I, I wouldn't say an attack on Facebook and Google, but it's definitely sort of limiting how much money they can make off ads and stuff. Once again, I believe in the privacy side of it, but I think there's better ways that it could have been done. I think it was almost done too quickly and no one really knew what was going on. And mm. that's why Apple themselves delayed it for a while. So, you know, we have these honest conversations with Apple themselves and we'll, we'll tell them what we're, we're thinking about stuff. But, you know, Fortnite made $500 million or something like that on, on iOS. So, and that's after I think Apple's cut. So, you know, if you've got to give Apple 30% of whatever that is, 800 million, 900 million, well, you know, too bad, really, I guess, at that point. Yeah, like, yeah. They're, they're providing you with the devices and the and the, the ecosystem to run that on. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's there's good and there's bad, but the way I see it is I'd rather customers came to our games with a sense of security that they can spend because if you start, you know, diluting that water, then they're going to spend less anyway and you'll probably lose more than 30%. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's a really good way to put it is I have tons of friends that have hospitality businesses and they're constantly complaining about Uber and how Uber take 30%. And they're always like, I'm just going to leave Uber and I'm going to do takeaway myself. And, you know, that way I don't have to give them 30%. And to every single one of them, I'm like, if you do that, you will lose way more than 30% of your customers because what Uber's providing you is a social network of users that are looking to buy food, right? And so you being there, you're going to get shown to somebody who's never heard of your restaurant before. Uh, and that's exactly how the app store is. We can put our game on there. Yes, we do a lot of user acquisition, but we get so many organic downloads through the app store because so many people are there to find a game and we just happen to be the game that pops up for them. So mm. what we get out of that 30% back, you know, like in free organic downloads is probably pays for itself anyway. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of my take on it, I'd say. Yeah, it's great, mate. Great, um, great take on it. You're a busy man. So thanks for taking the time to join Kevin and I, mate. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And if you ever want to chat, you know, technology or games, uh, yeah, invite me back. <laughs> Sounds good. Hey, thanks again so much for your time. If you like this interview with Jerry and you want to see more like it, or if you just enjoyed the, the discussion and hearing from me, former RASC analyst Kevin Fung and Jerry, come and join us inside the RASC Rockets Beyond program. Do it in the next five days. In my view, Playside is a high-risk investment idea, which is quickly gathering momentum. But it is the type of business that could transform itself into a cash flow machine if just one of its titles become a success. Its other revenue, like its work for hire, as Jerry said, effectively underwrite the optionality that's embedded within its design and development culture, its quicker and quicker feedback loops, customer acquisition funnel, and overall experience. If you want to get the name of nine other exciting, potentially game-changing small cap ASX companies, along with interviews, reports, and modeling, use the coupon code PLAY, that's P-L-A-Y, and the link to the checkout page that will allow you to join the RAS Rockets Beyond program. I really hope you can join us because I truly believe all of the RAS memberships offer the potential to pay for themselves, maybe even many times over. The coupon code PLAY in the link below will disappear in the next five days. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Australian Investors Podcast.